1717. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe from smittenkitchen.com for breakfast, baked eggs, chive biscuits, and Bloody Marys. Today I have failed you as a food blogger. I'm not proud. I cooked and cooked. We and our loved ones ate like kings. There was not a single recipe that shouldn't be archived and returned to. And yet, in the whirl of things, we forgot to pick up the camera. Hangs head in shame. You get no photographic evidence of the shredded hash browns, chive biscuits, egregious amount of thick-cut maple-cured bacon, baked almost orange French toast, insanely spicy Bloody Marys, plain yogurt I flavored myself with real vanilla and just a pinch of sugar, you're going to have to trust me that it was grand. Since we've been together, Alex and I have twice taken our mothers and those dudes they married for Mother's Day brunches. I'm not going to say that we hadn't real, had really good meals, but we've never had a great one. No matter who cooks it, and really it's always a short order cook, the chef with his or her name on the menu isn't called in six hours early just to flip eggs, in the end, most brunch menus look exactly alike, and with the one the price is jacked up for the holiday, you got to question the sanity of a $50 overcooked egg. I don't overcook my eggs, do you? And yet I'll pay someone else to do so. And to serve bacon, that's never quite crisp. My bacon is always crisp. It was in a post on the Gourmet Editor's blog by Ann Patchett that finally knocked some sanity back into my head. Among her seven reasons that food always tastes better at home, she talks about never needing a reservation, food always served at the correct temperature, meals are always perfectly portioned for her current level of hunger. I don't even overeat at home. No one ever steps out of the pantry and asks me if I want a dessert when I'm already perfectly full. And knowing everything that went into her food, even if it's saturated fat, but this was my favorite. Quote, frankly, I'm a good cook. I am my own personal chef. I know exactly what I like to eat, and that's how I fix my food every single time. I almost never let myself down. Most of the time I'm in a restaurant that I'm struck by the fact that the food is better at home. End quote. And with that, I couldn't rationalize another fabric napkin wrapped basket stale of stale scones and overly sweet muffins, because if there's anything I can't abide, it's a chalky scone, not when a flawless recipe is available at the touch of your fingertips. And there's one there at smittenkitchen.com. So yes, on to the food already. You already know about the three varieties of miniature muffins, corn, raspberry lemon, and banana with chocolate chips. But I think I've now found my go-to biscuit recipe. Even better, I plopped them on their baking sheet and stored them in the freezer for a day until I was ready to bake them to create less work for myself this morning. I'm brilliant, right? Uh, anyway, bacon is bacon, but I do love the thick cut stuff. You have them pack at the Whole Foods meat counter. It always gets noticed. I shred a russet potato or two and a half an onion in the food processor, squeeze them out very, very well, and fry them in a big patty to make hash browns, my absolute favorite bedding for a poached egg. I've already told you about my baked French toast, but I have to add that the glug of triple sec, zest of half an orange, 
and splash of almond extract combination is my favorite yet. I soaked it only for an hour or so and used 1% milk in lieu of whole and you'd never have known the difference. Finally, the baked eggs. If you're tired of the same old poached, baked, fried, scramble fix, you definitely need a dose of this. You create thickest and most lush bed of sautéed spinach, mushrooms, and onion with a splash of cream, and then you dig and fill egg-sized wells all over it and bake it in the oven until the whites are solid before finishing it off with Parmesan, and you literally scoop scoop it onto your plate and never look back. I know I haven't. Don't be put off by this unseemly picture. There is great deliciousness within. It's not a bad picture, but it does look like something somebody else would just do at home rather than a food blogger. All right, recipe for the Bloody Mary. This is from Fox and Hounds Tavern in St. Louis. You'll need five ounces of tomato juice, one and a half ounces of vodka, juice of two lime wedges, one half teaspoon of finely grated fresh horseradish, two or three dashes of Worcestershire sauce, three or four drops of Tabasco sauce, pinch of salt, pinch of celery salt, small pinch of cayenne pepper, and ice. Combine all of the ingredients in a pint glass and then pour the drink back and forth between the pint glass and a cocktail shaker four times and then pour the Bloody Mary into a highball glass over ice. It sounds delicious. Next, here's the recipe for baked eggs with spinach and mushrooms. This is from Gourmet Magazine, June of 2004, but it's an oldie but a goodie. You're going to need 10 ounces of baby spinach leaves one quarter cup of finely chopped onion, one garlic clove finely chopped, two tablespoons of unsalted butter, five ounces of mushrooms thinly sliced, about two cups, one third cup of heavy cream, one quarter teaspoon of salt, one quarter teaspoon of black pepper, one eighth teaspoon of freshly grated nutmeg, four large eggs, and two tablespoons of finely grated Parmesan. You're going to put that in the oven rack in the upper third of an oven and preheat your oven to 450 degrees Fahrenheit. Excuse me, you're not going to put that in the oven rack. You're going to move your oven rack to the upper third of the oven while you preheat. Then you're going to bring one half inch water to a boil and a 10 to 12 inch oven proof heavy skillet, not cast iron. And then you're going to add half of spinach and cook turning with tongs until wilted about 30 seconds. Add the remaining spinach and wilt in the same manner, then cook covered over moderately high heat until the spinach is tender about two minutes. Drain in a colander and cool under cold running water. Gently squeeze handfuls of spinach to remove as much liquid as possible, and then you're gonna coarsely chop it. Wipe your skillet dry, then cook onion and garlic in butter over moderately low heat, stirring until softened, two to three minutes. Add mushrooms and increase heat to moderate, then cook, stirring until the mushrooms are softened and have exuded liquid. That'll take about three minutes. Stir in cream, salt, pepper, nutmeg, and chopped spinach and bring it to a simmer. Remove the skillet from the heat, and make four large indentations in the spinach mixture. Break an egg into each indentation and bake uncovered 
Until the egg whites are set but yolks are still running, it'll be seven to 10 minutes. Lightly season the eggs with salt and pepper and then sprinkle with cheese. Now, this recipe, folks out there, is for buttermilk chive biscuits. This is adapted from Dot's Diner in Boulder, Colorado, where Audio Information Network is located, uh, of Colorado. This makes 12 servings. You're gonna need three cups of all-purpose flour, one teaspoon of sugar, original recipe calls for two tablespoons, but we need to cut that way down to one teaspoon. Four teaspoons of baking powder, one teaspoon of salt, one teaspoon of baking soda, three quarter cup, that's one and a half sticks of chilled unsalted butter cut into one quarter inch pieces, and then one quarter cup of minced fresh chives. You'll need one cup of buttermilk. Preheat the oven to 425 degrees Fahrenheit, and then whisk the flour, sugar, baking powder, salt, and baking soda in a large bowl to blend. Then, using your fingertips, rub three quarters of a cup of chilled butter into dry ingredients until the mixture resembles coarse meal. Then you're gonna stir in chives. Add buttermilk and stir until evenly moistened. Using one cup of dough for each biscuit, you're gonna drop the biscuits onto a baking sheet, spacing about two inches apart, and then bake until the biscuits are golden brown on top, about 15 minutes. Cool slightly and serve warm. Little side note here, I'm a sucker for the round, bumpy edge biscuit shape, so I rolled it out on well-floured counter and cut them with a three inch biscuit cutter. Take care to handle the dough as little as humanly possible so as not to warm it or soften it too much. That sounds like a lovely breakfast. Next, we're gonna have some uh, a black bean confetti salad. This could be your lunch after that huge breakfast. <laughs> um, so, Sweet Speckled Sunshine, that was a good week. Never underestimate the power of blinding sun, square canvas umbrellas, swing bar stools, and 10,000 renditions of Guant uh, Guantanamera, Guantanamera <laughs> to turn your mind back to Tabula Rasa. What did I do this week? Well, I wish I could tell you, but every time I try to recall stretches of time, they skitter off like pieces of paper in a gusty breeze, just leaving me with small, unconnected bits, like the perfectly round golf ball-sized limes everywhere, suns so bright it demands your undivided attention, long piers that end in shade in a Havana-style eatery built from worn white wood, Lounge chairs so comfortable, so well thought out, you could lose a day, no, a week in one and not miss it at all. And so we did. And the only thing I cooked was grilled cheese sandwiches. But I ate with glee. People, I love beans. I mean, I really, really love them. And pretty much any day I get to eat them is one step up from the days I do not. Isn't it great to, that some things can be so perfectly simple? In Mexico, with no effort, you can eat beans at least twice a day, and never did I tire of them. Never were they not the first thing I dove my fork into on the plate. You'd think after several mornings of huevos rancheros and seven dinners of small shredded meat soft tacos, it'd all get old, but it did not. And now I'm home, miraculously with sunny days in tow, and still I long for these flavors. 
So when Jocelyn, my blog sitter extraordinary, seriously, how much fun is she? When she invited us over for a rooftop barbecue this afternoon, it took me about 10 seconds to decide that if I had to go a whole day without beans, vacation might actually be over and vacation cannot actually be over. I simply will not have it. Don't make me throw a temper tantrum because really it's a sure thing that I won't elicit any sympathy from anyone. And so I made a black bean confetti salad with a cumin lime vinaigrette and salsa fresca because I couldn't resist. And we scooped it onto tortilla chips as the sun set behind Manhattan and it was delicious and vacation did not end yet. But I hear it will soon, so excuse me while I go hide for a little while and don't mind that margarita glass on the nightstand. I was just a little bit thirsty. Here's the recipe, black bean confetti salad. This works equally well as a small salad, even tossed with salad greens for more bulk or alongside salsa fresca for scooping up with a tortilla chip. You'll need two 15 ounce cans of black beans, drained and well rinsed, four bell peppers, a mix of colors, chopped into a small dice, one half of a super large or one medium white onion, chopped into a small dice, juice of one lime, three tablespoons of olive oil, one teaspoon of ground cumin, three quarters teaspoon of salt, one fresh chili, very thinly sliced or finely chopped, or hot sauce to taste. That's and then this is optional. If you're the kind of person who loves cilantro, it is a great match for the salad. If you're one of those people that don't, then definitely don't put it in. But you're going to mix the beans, bell peppers, and white onion in a large bowl. In a separate, smaller bowl, whisk remaining ingredients into a vinaigrette. Ideally, you'll have a half cup of dressing, and then you're going to pour it over the bean mixture, toss it well, and adjust the seasonings to taste. That sounds like it tastes delicious to me. <laughs> Next, we're going to have a recipe from goop.com for one of my favorite things that I actually just had the other day at a breakfast place I went to with a friend, and it's called migas. Tip, you can use siete tortillas to make this grain-free, which is what would work for me. Migas means crumbs in Spanish. This dish is a brilliant low-waste meal and a great way to use up stale tortillas when you have them. Our riff is more akin to Tex-Mex versions with onions, jalapenos, and shredded cheese. We'd like to serve it with avocado, cilantro, and hot sauce, but you could add your favorite breakfast meat or meat substitute and a side of refried beans for a full-on feast. This serves four. You're going to need two tablespoons of a neutral oil, four corn tortillas cut in half and then into one quarter inch strips, one half of a small white onion, one half of a jalapeno seeded and ribs removed, one tablespoon of butter, eight eggs beaten, one half cup of Mex Mexican shredded cheese. To serve, you'll need avocado, cilantro, and hot sauce. You're gonna heat the oil in a large nonstick skillet over medium heat, Add the tortilla strips and cook, stirring occasionally to keep them from clumping together. After about three minutes, the tortillas should be developing some color but not fully crisp. And at this point, add the onion and jalapeno and cook for another five minutes until tender and slightly brown. 
Then you're going to reduce the heat to medium low and add the butter. Once it's melted, carefully pour the beaten eggs all over the tortilla and onion mixture. Work quickly to stir the egg mixture so nothing overcooks and the mix sets evenly. And just before the eggs set, top them with cheese. To finish, top each serving with avocado, cilantro, and hot sauce. Next recipe is going to be for two classic sangrias. Last Friday we had 17 people over for dinner. Nope, we haven't moved to a larger apartment. Nope, my kitchen hasn't grown to the size of a normal one, though some mornings I tiptoe in hoping it will surprise me. Nope, I hadn't really expected almost all my friends to be able to make it when I invited them, but I wasn't the least bit sad when I found out they'd all come, most because my vision of the ideal apartment gathering resembles the party scene from Breakfast at Tiffany's. And boy, we get closer every time. The precursor to this was when, about a month ago, I moped, as I often do, to my husband that we never entertain anymore and that we should just do it, just throw a party and have enough aperitifs around that pesky details such as a cranky child up past their bedtime and who needs chairs, pull up a corner of a carpet to sit on and oops, did we invite more people than we have forks for again? Would cease to matter. Wine solves everything, doesn't it? My husband was less confident, so I decided to tackle the roadblocks one by one like an adult. Boring. It turns out we actually have a lot of plates and flatware because my mother once gave me the sound advice to always buy or register for more than you think you'll need. Your friends will thank you. But the other problems were still fairly easily solved. For example, not enough table space. It turns out folding tables are inexpensive and can be hidden surprisingly well under the sofa. Not enough chairs? Ikea is so on that, guys, and they fold so flat I couldn't even find them once my husband put them away. Whether or not he didn't just put them at the curb is a question I decided not to ask. And then I got carried away and even bought our very first tablecloths and some tea light holders instant dinner party kit. I blame Susan Spungen for getting me dreaming about dinner parties again. Her new book is full of the kind of details that most of us probably not raised in a generation where hosting skills were considered as important as knowing how to set one's hair with hot rollers might not have absorbed, but help when you decide to burst the seams of your apartment in the name of a good time. It's full of ideas I'd otherwise not have thought of, such as pulling up our bath rug before people come, because it's just going to get wrecked under parade of shoes. Plus, all sorts of helpful guides, such as how to figure out how much food you'll need, how to create a backup fridge, why brunch is the best meal to get the hang of hosting before moving on to bigger meals like seated dinners, and of course, hundreds of entertaining-minded recipes, as well as wine and cheese pairing tips. Jenny Rosenstrach outlines even more recipes here, and there's a link in the article. There's one tip she suggests, however, that I hadn't considered, but I'd like to next time, which is to put out a pitcher of signature cocktails so everyone doesn't have to fend for themselves with a mess of ingredients in the bar area. In our case, a toddler art table, temporarily reassigned. Sorry, kid. When it comes to pitchers of drinks, few make a wide range of people as happy as sangria and are as efficient at using up mediocre bottles of wine, not that anyone we know would ever bring such things. Sangria, when it's good, which for me is not terribly sweet and chock full of chopped fruit, 
is about the best entertaining trick one can have, and it pained me that I didn't have a go-to recipe at home. I've been put off by glasses that are heavy, syrupy, and full of strange ingredients, when in fact about the only place that makes it exactly the way I like it is the shoebox of a tapas restaurant a few blocks away. And guys, as if a sign from above or just the publishing gods, their recipe was in the New York Times dining section this week. I mean, yesterday. As in, I read it, shopped it, and we were drinking a glass at home after the kid went to sleep and before the paper even became birdcage liner. The Pata Negra Sangria may not be for everyone. It's barely sweet, although you can add more sugar. And it has a longer ingredient list and bigger yield than what you might be used to. So in the interest of making everyone happy, which is really what entertaining is about, I'm also going to share Susan Spongen's simpler, simple one below, slightly sweeter, but still not oppressively so, and a more reasonable volume for those times when you're entertaining fewer than 17 people. But really, where is the fun in that? Two sangrias. The first recipe is a classic, not very sweet sangria with a moderate yield and a minimum of odd ingredients. It's the little black dress of sangrias. Susan Spungen recommends trying it with a white wine instead of red in the summer and adding peaches or berries too. The second is the one we fell in love with at a small restaurant in our neighborhood. It's much less sweet, it has barely a pinch of sugar in it, although you can add more. And it tastes mostly of wine with a little pep from fizz, and it makes a whole lot. Rose is added, rosé is added to lighten the mixture, and the chef, Rafael Mateo, recommends you let it knit together overnight and only adding the fruit to each glass to serve. So here's the classic sangria, one bottle of dry red wine, one tablespoon sugar, one quarter cup brandy, one quarter cup triple sec or another orange liqueur, one quarter cup of freshly squeezed orange juice, sliced peaches, apples, oranges, or berries tossed with a squeeze of lemon juice and sparkling water if desired. You're going to mix the wine, sugar, brandy, liqueur, and orange juice in a large pitcher. Add fruit and let sit in the fridge until needed, and then add some sparkling water if you're using right before serving. A slotted spoon will help guests hold back the fruit while pouring their glasses and spoon some on top if desired. For the Pata Negra Sangria, this is adapted from the restaurant via the New York Times. You're going to need two bottles of dry Spanish red wine. They recommend Garnacha. One bottle of dry Spanish rosé. They recommend this to lighten the body of the sangria. One ounce of orange liqueur, such as triple sec or torres. Two ounces of brandy, preferably Spanish, such as aromate. One tablespoon sugar, or more to taste. Two tables or two apples cored and diced for garnish. I used one red and one green for color. Two oranges cut into wedges for garnish and 12 ounces or one can of orange soda. They recommend a less sweet brand such as San Pellegrino Aranciata. In a large vessel, you're going to combine the wines, liqueur, brandy, and sugar, and then mix fruit and set aside. Right before serving, pour in soda. Fill glasses with ice and pour sangria over, and then garnish with fruit. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller.